Rule 8. Tell the truth, or, at least, don't lie. Truth in No Man's Land. I trained to become a clinical psychologist at McGill University in Montreal. While doing so, I sometimes met my classmates on the grounds of Montreal's Douglas Hospital, where we had our first direct experiences with the mentally ill. The Douglas occupies acres of land and dozens of buildings. Many are connected by underground tunnels to protect workers and patients from the interminable Montreal winters. The hospital once sheltered hundreds of long term in house patients. This was before antipsychotic drugs and the large scale deinstitutionalization movements of the late 60s all but closed down the residential asylums, most often dooming the now freed patients to a much harder life on the streets. By the early 80s, when I first visited the grounds, all but the most seriously afflicted residents had been discharged. Those who remained were strange, much damaged people. They clustered around the vending machines scattered throughout the hospital's tunnels. They looked as if they had been photographed by Diane Arbus or painted by Hieronymus Bosch. One day, my classmates and I were all standing in line. We were awaiting further instruction from the straight laced German psychologist who ran the Douglas Clinical Training Program. A long term inpatient, fragile and vulnerable, approached one of the other students, a sheltered, conservative young woman. The patient spoke to her in a friendly, childlike manner and asked, Why are you all standing here? What are you doing? Can I come along with you? My classmate turned to me and asked uncertainly, What should I say to her? She was taken aback, just as I was, by this request coming from someone so isolated and hurt. Neither of us wanted to say anything that might be construed as a rejection or reprimand. We had temporarily entered a kind of no man's land in which society offers no ground rules or guidance. We were new clinical students, unprepared to be confronted on the grounds of a mental hospital by a schizophrenic patient asking a naive, friendly question about the possibility of social belonging. The natural conversational give and take between people attentive to contextual cues was not happening here either. What exactly were the rules in such a situation, far outside the boundaries of normal social interaction? What exactly were the options? There were only two, as far as I could quickly surmise. I could tell the patient a story designed to save everyone's face, or I could answer truthfully We can only take eight people in our group. Would have fallen into the first category, as would have, we are just leaving the hospital now. Neither of these answers would have bruised any feelings, at least on the surface, and the presence of the status differences that divided us from her would have gone unremarked. But neither answer would have been exactly true, so I didn't offer either. I told the patient as simply and directly as I could that we were new students training to be psychologists and that she couldn't join us for that reason. The answer highlighted the distinction between her situation and ours, making the gap between us greater and more evident. The answer was harsher than a well crafted white lie. But I already had an inkling that untruth, however well meant, can produce unintended consequences. She looked crestfallen and hurt, but only for a moment. Then she understood, and it was all right. That was just how it was. I had had a strange set of experiences a few years before embarking upon my clinical training. 
I found myself subject to some rather violent compulsions, none acted upon, and developed the conviction, in consequence, that I really knew rather little about who I was and what I was up to. So I began paying much closer attention to what I was doing and saying. The experience was disconcerting, to say the least. I soon divided myself into two parts, one that spoke and one more detached, that paid attention and judged. I soon came to realize that almost everything I said was untrue. I had motives for saying these things. I wanted to win arguments and gain status and impress people and get what I wanted. I was using language to bend and twist the world into delivering what I thought was necessary. But I was a fake. Realizing this, I started to practice only saying things that the internal voice would not object to. I started to practice telling the truth, or at least not lying. I soon learned that such a skill came in very handy when I didn't know what to do. What should you do when you don't know what to do? Tell the truth. So that's what I did my first day at the Douglas Hospital. Later, I had a client who was paranoid and dangerous. Working with paranoid people is challenging. They believe they have been targeted by mysterious conspiratorial forces working malevolently behind the scenes. Paranoid people are hyper-alert and hyper-focused. They are attending to nonverbal cues with an intentness never manifest during ordinary human interactions. They make mistakes in interpretation. That's the paranoia. But they are still almost uncanny in their ability to detect mixed motives, judgment, and falsehood. You have to listen very carefully and tell the truth if you're going to get a paranoid person to open up to you. I listened carefully and spoke truthfully to my client. Now and then he would describe blood-curdling fantasies of flaying people for revenge. I would watch how I was reacting. I paid attention to what thoughts and images emerged in the theater of my imagination while he spoke, and I told him what I observed. I was not trying to control or direct his thoughts or actions or mine. I was only trying to let him know as transparently as I could how what he was doing was directly affecting at least one person. Me. My careful attention and frank responses did not mean at all that I remained unperturbed, let alone approved. I told him when he scared me, often, that his words and behavior were misguided and that he was going to get into serious trouble. He talked to me, nonetheless, because I listened and responded honestly, even though I was not encouraging in my responses. He trusted me, despite or, more accurately, because of my objections. He was paranoid, not stupid. He knew his behavior was socially unacceptable. He knew that any decent person was likely to react with horror to his insane fantasies. He trusted me and would talk to me because that's how I reacted. There was no chance of understanding him without that trust. Trouble, for him, generally started in a bureaucracy, such as a bank. He would enter an institution and attempt some simple task. He was looking to open an account or pay a bill or fix some mistake. Now and then, he encountered the kind of non-helpful person that everyone encounters now and then in such a place. 
that person would reject the ID he offered or require some information that was unnecessary and difficult to obtain. Sometimes, I suppose, the bureaucratic runaround was unavoidable, but sometimes it was unnecessarily complicated by petty misuses of bureaucratic power. My client was very attuned to such things. He was obsessed with honor. It was more important to him than safety, freedom, or belonging. Following that logic, because paranoid people are impeccably logical, he could never allow himself to be demeaned, insulted, or put down, even a little bit, by anyone. Water did not roll off his back. Because of his rigid and inflexible attitude, my client's actions had already been subjected to several restraining orders. Restraining orders work best, however, with the sort of person who would never require a restraining order. I will be your worst nightmare, was his phrase of choice in such situations. I have wished intensely that I could say something like that after encountering unnecessary bureaucratic obstacles, but it's generally best to let such things go. My client meant what he said, however, and sometimes he really did become someone's nightmare. He was the bad guy in no country for old men. He was the person you meet in the wrong place at the wrong time. If you messed with him, even accidentally, he was going to stalk you, remind you what you had done, and scare the living daylights out of you. He was no one to lie to. I told him the truth, and that cooled him off. My Landlord I had a landlord around that time who'd been president of a local biker gang. My wife, Tammy, and I lived next door to him in his parents' small apartment building. His girlfriend bore the marks of self-inflicted injuries characteristic of borderline personality disorder. She killed herself while we lived there. Denny, large, strong, French-Canadian with a gray beard, was a gifted amateur electrician. He had some artistic talent, too, and was supporting himself making laminated wood posters with custom neon lights. He was trying to stay sober after being released from jail. Still, every month or so, he would disappear on a days-long bender. He was one of those men who have a miraculous capacity for alcohol. He could drink 50 or 60 beer in a two-day binge and remain standing the whole time. This may seem hard to believe. But it's true. I was doing research on familial alcoholism at the time, and it was not rare for my subjects to report their father's habitual consumption of 40 ounces of vodka a day. These patriarchs would buy one bottle every afternoon, Monday through Friday, and then two on Saturday to tide them over through this Sunday liquor store closure. Denis had a little dog. Sometimes, Tammy and I would hear Denis and the dog out in the backyard at four in the morning during one of Denis's marathon drinking sessions, both of them howling madly at the moon. Now and then, on occasions like that, Denis would drink up every cent he had saved. Then he would show up at our apartment. We would hear a knock at night. Denis would be at the door, swaying precipitously, upright, and miraculously conscious. He would be standing there, toaster, microwave, or poster in hand. He wanted to sell these to me so he could keep on drinking. I bought a few things like this, pretending that I was being charitable. Eventually, Tammy convinced me that I couldn't do it anymore. 
It made her nervous, and it was bad for Denis, whom she liked. Reasonable and even necessary as her request was, it still placed me in a tricky position. What do you say to a severely intoxicated, violence-prone ex-biker gang president with patchy English when he tries to sell his microwave to you at your open door at two in the morning? This was a question even more difficult than those presented by the institutionalized patient or the paranoid flare. But the answer was the same. The truth. But you'd bloody well better know what the truth is. Denis knocked again soon after my wife and I had talked. He looked at me in the direct, skeptical, narrow-eyed manner characteristic of the tough, heavy-drinking man who is no stranger to trouble. That look means, prove your innocence. Weaving slightly back and forth, he asked, politely, if I might be interested in purchasing his toaster. I rid myself to the bottom of my soul of primate dominance motivations and moral superiority. I told him, as directly and carefully as I could, that I would not. I was playing no tricks. In that moment, I wasn't an educated, anglophone, fortunate, upwardly mobile young man. He wasn't an ex-con Quebecois biker with a blood alcohol level of 0.24. No, we were two men of goodwill, trying to help each other out in our common struggle to do the right thing. I said that he had told me he was trying to quit drinking. I said that it would not be good for him if I provided him with more money. I said that he made Tammy, whom he respected, nervous when he came over so drunk and so late and tried to sell me things. He glared seriously at me without speaking for about 15 seconds. That was plenty long enough. He was watching, I knew, for any micro-expression revealing sarcasm, deceit, contempt, or self-congratulation. But I had thought it through carefully and I had only said things I truly meant. I had chosen my words, carefully, traversing a treacherous swamp, feeling out a partially submerged stone path. Denis turned and left. Not only that, he remembered our conversation, despite his state of professional-level intoxication. He didn't try to sell me anything again. Our relationship, which was quite good, given the great cultural gaps between us, became even more solid. Taking the easy way out or telling the truth, those are not merely two different choices. They are different pathways through life. They are utterly different ways of existing. Manipulate the world. You can use words to manipulate the world into delivering what you want. This is what it means to act politically. This is spin. It's the specialty of unscrupulous marketers, salesmen, advertisers, pickup artists, slogan-possessed utopians, and psychopaths. It's the speech people engage in when they attempt to influence and manipulate others. It's what university students do when they write an essay to please the professor instead of articulating and clarifying their own ideas. It's what everyone does when they want something and decide to falsify themselves to please and flatter. It's scheming and sloganeering and propaganda. To conduct life like this 
is to become possessed by some ill-formed desire and then to craft speech and action in a manner that appears likely, rationally, to bring about that end. Typical calculated ends might include to impose my ideological beliefs, to prove that I am or was right, to appear competent, to ratchet myself up the dominance hierarchy, to avoid responsibility, or its twin, to garner credit for others' actions, to be promoted, to attract the lion's share of attention, to ensure that everyone likes me, to garner the benefits of martyrdom, to justify my cynicism, to rationalize my antisocial outlook, to minimize immediate conflict, to maintain my naivete, to capitalize on my vulnerability, to always appear as the sainted one, or, this one is particularly evil, to ensure that it is always my unloved child's fault. These are all examples of what Sigmund Freud's compatriot, the lesser-known Austrian psychologist Alfred Adler, called life lies. Someone living a life lie is attempting to manipulate reality with perception, thought, and action so that only some narrowly desired and predefined outcome is allowed to exist. A life lived in this manner is based, consciously or unconsciously, on two premises. The first is that current knowledge is sufficient to define what is good, unquestioningly, far into the future. The second is that reality would be unbearable if left to its own devices. The first presumption is philosophically unjustifiable. What you are currently aiming at might not be worth attaining, just as what you are currently doing might be an error. The second is even worse. It is valid only if reality is intrinsically intolerable and, simultaneously, something that can be successfully manipulated and distorted. Such speaking and thinking requires the arrogance and certainty that the English poet John Milton's genius identified with Satan, God's highest angel, gone most spectacularly wrong. The faculty of rationality inclines dangerously to pride. All I know is all that needs to be known. Pride falls in love with its own creations and tries to make them absolute. I have seen people define their utopia and then bend their lives into knots trying to make it reality. A left-leaning student adopts a trendy, anti-authority stance and spends the next 20 years working resentfully to topple the windmills of his imagination. An 18-year-old decides arbitrarily that she wants to retire at 52. She works for three decades to make that happen, failing to notice that she made that decision when she was little more than a child. What did she know about her 52-year-old self when still a teenager? Even now, many years later, she has only the vaguest, lowest-resolution idea of her post-work Eden. She refuses to notice. What did her life mean if that initial goal was wrong? She's afraid of opening Pandora's box where all the troubles of the world reside. But hope is in there, too. Instead, she warps her life to fit the fantasies of a sheltered adolescent. 
a naively formulated goal transmutes with time into the sinister form of the life lie. One forty-something client told me his vision, formulated by his younger self. I see myself retired, sitting on a tropical beach, drinking margaritas in the sunshine. That's not a plan. That's a travel poster. After eight margaritas, you're fit only to await the hangover. After three weeks of margarita-filled days, if you have any sense, you're bored stiff and self-disgusted. In a year or less, you're pathetic. It's just not a sustainable approach to later life. This kind of oversimplification and falsification is particularly typical of ideologues. They adopt a single axiom. Government is bad. Immigration is bad. Capitalism is bad. Patriarchy is bad. Then they filter and screen their experiences and insist ever more narrowly that everything can be explained by that axiom. They believe, narcissistically, underneath all that bad theory, that the world could be put right if only they held the controls. There is another fundamental problem, too, with the life lie, particularly when it is based on avoidance. A sin of commission occurs when you do something you know to be wrong. A sin of omission occurs when you let something bad happen, when you could do something to stop it. The former is regarded classically as more serious than the latter, than avoidance. I'm not so sure. Consider the person who insists that everything is right in her life. She avoids conflict and smiles and does what she is asked to do. She finds a niche and hides in it. She does not question authority or put her own ideas forward and does not complain when mistreated. She strives for invisibility like a fish in the center of a swarming school. But a secret unrest gnaws at her heart. She is still suffering because life is suffering. She is lonesome and isolated and unfulfilled. But her obedience and self-obliteration eliminate all the meaning from her life. She has become nothing but a slave, a tool for others to exploit. She does not get what she wants or needs because doing so would mean speaking her mind. So, there is nothing of value in her existence to counterbalance life's troubles. And that makes her sick. It might be the noisy troublemakers who disappear first when the institution you serve falters and shrinks, but it's the invisible who will be sacrificed next. Someone hiding is not someone vital. Vitality requires original contribution. Hiding also does not save the conforming and conventional from disease, insanity, death, and taxes. And hiding from others also means suppressing and hiding the potentialities of the unrealized self. And that's the problem. If you will not reveal yourself to others, you cannot reveal yourself to yourself. That does not only mean that you suppress who you are, although it also means that. It means that so much of what you could be will never be forced by necessity to come forward. This is a biological truth as well as a conceptual truth. When you explore boldly, when you voluntarily confront the unknown, you gather information and build your renewed self out of that information. That is the conceptual element. 
However, researchers have recently discovered that new genes in the central nervous system turn themselves on when an organism is placed, or places itself, in a new situation. These genes code for new proteins. These proteins are the building blocks for new structures in the brain. This means that a lot of you is still nascent in the most physical of senses and will not be called forth by stasis. You have to say something, go somewhere, and do things to get turned on. And, if not, you remain incomplete. And life is too hard for anyone incomplete. If you say no to your boss or your spouse or your mother when it needs to be said, then you transform yourself into someone who can say no when it needs to be said. If you say yes when no needs to be said, however, you transform yourself into someone who can only say yes even when it is very clearly time to say no. If you ever wonder how perfectly ordinary, decent people could find themselves doing the terrible things the gulag camp guards did, you now have your answer. By the time no seriously needed to be said, there was no one left capable of saying it. If you betray yourself, if you say untrue things, if you act out a lie, you weaken your character. If you have a weak character, then adversity will mow you down when it appears, as it will, inevitably. You will hide, but there will be no place left to hide. And then you will find yourself doing terrible things. Only the most cynical, hopeless philosophy insists that reality could be improved through falsification. Such a philosophy judges being and becoming alike and deems them flawed. It denounces truth as insufficient and the honest man as deluded. It is a philosophy that both brings about and then justifies the endemic corruption of the world. It is not vision as such, and not a plan devised to achieve a vision, that is at fault under such circumstances. A vision of the future, the desirable future, is necessary. Such a vision links action taken now with important, long-term, foundational values. It lends action in the present significance and importance. It provides a frame limiting uncertainty and anxiety. It's not vision. It is instead willful blindness. It's the worst sort of lie. It's subtle. It avails itself of easy rationalizations. Willful blindness is the refusal to know something that could be known. It's refusal to admit that the knocking sound means someone at the door. It's refusal to acknowledge the 800-pound gorilla in the room, the elephant under the carpet, the skeleton in the closet. It's refusal to admit to error while pursuing the plan. Every game has rules. Some of the most important rules are implicit. You accept them merely by deciding to play the game. The first of these rules is that the game is important. If it wasn't important, you wouldn't be playing it. Playing a game defines it as important. The second is that moves undertaken during the game are valid if they help you win. 
If you make a move and it isn't helping you win, then, by definition, it's a bad move. You need to try something different. You remember the old joke. Insanity is doing the same thing over and over while expecting different results. If you're lucky and you fail and you try something new, you move ahead. If that doesn't work, you try something different again. A minor modification will suffice in fortunate circumstances. It is therefore prudent to begin with small changes and see if they help. Sometimes, however, the entire hierarchy of values is faulty and the whole edifice has to be abandoned. The whole game must be changed. That's a revolution, with all the chaos and terror of a revolution. It's not something to be engaged in lightly, but it's sometimes necessary. Error necessitates sacrifice to correct it, and serious error necessitates serious sacrifice. To accept the truth means to sacrifice. And if you have rejected the truth for a long time, then you've run up a dangerously large sacrificial debt. Forest fires burn out deadwood and return trapped elements to the soil. Sometimes, however, fires are suppressed artificially. That does not stop the deadwood from accumulating. Sooner or later, a fire will start. When it does, it will burn so hot that everything will be destroyed, even the soil in which the forest grows. The prideful, rational mind, comfortable with its certainty, enamored of its own brilliance, is easily tempted to ignore error and to sweep dirt under the rug. Literary, existential philosophers, beginning with Soren Kierkegaard, conceived of this mode of being as inauthentic. An inauthentic person continues to perceive and act in ways his own experience has demonstrated false. He does not speak with his own voice. Did what I want happen? No. Then my aim or my methods were wrong. I still have something to learn. That is the voice of authenticity. Did what I want happen? No. Then the world is unfair. People are jealous and too stupid to understand. It is the fault of something or someone else. That is the voice of inauthenticity. It is not too far from there to they should be stopped or they must be hurt or they must be destroyed. Whenever you hear about something incomprehensibly brutal, such ideas have manifested themselves. There's no blaming any of this on unconsciousness either or repression. When the individual lies, he knows it. He may blind himself to the consequences of his actions. He may fail to analyze and articulate his past so that he does not understand. He may even forget that he lied and so be unconscious of that fact. But he was conscious in the present during the commission of each error and the omission of each responsibility. At that moment, he knew what he was up to. And the sins of the inauthentic individual compound and corrupt the state. Someone power-hungry makes a new rule at your workplace. It's unnecessary. It's counterproductive. It's an irritant. It removes some of the pleasure and meaning from your work. But you tell yourself, it's all right. It's not worth complaining about. Then it happens again. 
You've already trained yourself to allow such things by failing to react the first time. You're a little less courageous. Your opponent, unopposed, is a little bit stronger. The institution is a little bit more corrupt. The process of bureaucratic stagnation and oppression is underway, and you've contributed by pretending that it was okay. Why not complain? Why not take a stand? If you do, other people, equally afraid to speak up, may come to your defense. And if not, maybe it's time for a revolution. Maybe you should find a job somewhere else where your soul is less in danger from corruption. For what shall it profit a man if he gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? Mark 8, 36 one of the major contributions of Alexander Solzhenitsyn's masterwork, the Gulag Archipelago, was his analysis of the direct causal relationship between the pathology of the Soviet prison-work-camp-dependent state where millions suffered and died, and the almost universal proclivity of the Soviet citizen to falsify his own day-to-day -day personal experience, deny his own state-induced suffering, and thereby prop up the dictates of the rational, ideology-possessed communist system. It was this bad faith, this denial, that in Solzhenitsyn's opinion aided and abetted that great paranoid mass murderer, Joseph Stalin, in his crimes. Solzhenitsyn wrote the truth, his truth, hard-learned through his own experiences in the camps, exposing the lies of the Soviet state. No educated person dared defend that ideology again after Solzhenitsyn published the Gulag Archipelago. No one could ever say again, what Stalin did, that was not true communism. Viktor Frankl, the psychiatrist and Nazi concentration camp survivor who wrote the classic Man's Search for Meaning, drew a similar social-psychological conclusion. Deceitful, inauthentic individual existence is the precursor to social totalitarianism. Sigmund Freud, for his part, analogously believed that repression contributed in a non-trivial manner to the development of mental illness, and the difference between repression of truth and a lie is a matter of degree, not kind. Alfred Adler knew it was lies that bred sickness. C.G. Jung knew that moral problems plagued his patients and that such problems were caused by untruth. All these thinkers, all centrally concerned with pathology, both individual and cultural, came to the same conclusion. Lies warp the structure of being. Untruth corrupts the soul and the state alike, and one form of corruption feeds the other. I have repeatedly observed the transformation of mere existential misery into outright hell by betrayal and deceit. The barely manageable crisis of a parent's terminal illness can be turned, for example, into something awful beyond description by the unseemly and petty squabbling of the sufferer's adult children. Obsessed by the unresolved past, they gather like ghouls around the deathbed, forcing tragedy into an unholy dalliance with cowardice and resentment. 
the inability of a son to thrive independently is exploited by a mother bent on shielding her child from all disappointment and pain. He never leaves. She is never lonely. It's an evil conspiracy forged slowly as the pathology unfolds by thousands of knowing winks and nods. She plays the martyr, doomed to support her son, and garners nourishing sympathy like a vampire from supporting friends. He broods in his basement, imagining himself oppressed. He fantasizes with delight about the havoc he might wreak on the world that rejected him for his cowardice, awkwardness, and inability. And sometimes he wreaks precisely that havoc. And everyone asks, why? They could know, but refuse to. Even well-lived lives can, of course, be warped and hurt and twisted by illness and infirmity and uncontrollable catastrophe. Depression, bipolar disorder, and schizophrenia, like cancer, all involve biological factors beyond the individual's immediate control. The difficulties intrinsic to life itself are sufficient to weaken and overwhelm each of us, pushing us beyond our limits, breaking us at our weakest point. Not even the best-lived life provides an absolute defense against vulnerability. But the family that fights in the ruins of their earthquake-devastated dwelling place is much less likely to rebuild than the family made strong by mutual trust and devotion. Any natural weakness or existential challenge, no matter how minor, can be magnified into a serious crisis with enough deceit in the individual, family, or culture. The honest human spirit may continually fail in its attempts to bring about paradise on earth. It may manage, however, to reduce the suffering attendant on existence to bearable levels. The tragedy of being is the consequence of our limitations and the vulnerability defining human experience. It may even be the price we pay for being itself, since existence must be limited to be at all. I have seen a husband adapt honestly and courageously while his wife descended into terminal dementia. He made the necessary adjustments, step by step. He accepted help when he needed it. He refused to deny her sad deterioration and in that manner adapted gracefully to it. I saw the family of that same woman come together in a supporting and sustaining manner as she lay dying and gain newfound connections with each other, brother, sisters, grandchildren, and father, as partial but genuine compensation for their loss. I have seen my teenage daughter live through the destruction of her hip and her ankle and survive two years of continual intense pain and emerge with her spirit intact. I watched her younger brother voluntarily and without resentment sacrifice many opportunities for friendship and social engagement to stand by her and us while she suffered. With love, encouragement, and character intact, a human being can be resilient beyond imagining. What cannot be borne, however, is the absolute ruin produced by tragedy and deception. The capacity of the rational mind to deceive, manipulate, scheme, trick, falsify, 
minimize, mislead, betray, prevaricate, deny, omit, rationalize, bias, exaggerate, and obscure is so endless, so remarkable, that centuries of pre-scientific thought concentrating on clarifying the nature of moral endeavor regarded it as positively demonic. This is not because of rationality itself as a process. That process can produce clarity and progress. It is because rationality is subject to the single worst temptation, to raise what it knows now to the status of an absolute. We can turn to the great poet John Milton once again to clarify just what this means. Over thousands of years of history, the Western world wrapped a dreamlike fantasy about the nature of evil around its central religious core. That fantasy had a protagonist, an adversarial personality, absolutely dedicated to the corruption of being. Milton took it upon himself to organize, dramatize, and articulate the essence of this collective dream and gave it life in the figure of Satan, Lucifer, the light-bearer. He writes of Lucifer's primal temptation and its immediate consequences. He trusted to have equaled the Most High if he opposed, and with ambitious aim against the throne and monarchy of God, raised impious war in heaven and battle-proud with vain attempt. Him the almighty power hurled headlong, flaming from the ethereal sky, with hideous ruin and combustion, down to bottomless perdition, there to dwell in adamantine chains and penal fire. Lucifer, in Milton's eyes, the spirit of reason, was the most wondrous angel brought forth from the void by God. This can be read psychologically. Reason is something alive. It lives in all of us. It's older than any of us. It's best understood as a personality, not a faculty. It has its aims and its temptations and its weaknesses. It flies higher and sees farther than any other spirit. But reason falls in love with itself, and worse, it falls in love with its own productions. It elevates them and worships them as absolutes. Lucifer is, therefore, the spirit of totalitarianism. He is flung from heaven into hell because such elevation, such rebellion against the highest and incomprehensible, inevitably produces hell. To say it again, it is the greatest temptation of the rational faculty to glorify its own capacity and its own productions and to claim that in the face of its theories, nothing transcendent or outside its domain need exist. This means that all important facts have been discovered. This means that nothing important remains unknown. But most importantly, it means denial of the necessity for courageous individual confrontation with being. What is going to save you? The totalitarian says, in essence, you must rely on faith in what you already know. But that is not what saves. What saves is the willingness to learn from what you don't know. That is faith in the possibility of human transformation. That is faith in the sacrifice of the current self for the self that could be. The totalitarian denies the necessity for the individual to take ultimate responsibility for being. 
That denial is the meaning of rebellion against the Most High. That is what totalitarian means. Everything that needs to be discovered has been discovered. Everything will unfold precisely as planned. All problems will vanish forever once the perfect system is accepted. Milton's great poem was a prophecy. As rationality rose ascendant from the ashes of Christianity, the great threat of total systems accompanied it. Communism, in particular, was attractive not so much to oppressed workers, its hypothetical beneficiaries, but to intellectuals, to those whose arrogant pride in intellect assured them they were always right. But the promised utopia never emerged. Instead, humanity experienced the inferno of Stalinist Russia and Mao's China and Pol Pot's Cambodia, and the citizens of those states were required to betray their own experience, turn against their fellow citizens, and die in the tens of millions. There is an old Soviet joke. An American dies and goes to hell. Satan himself shows him around. They pass a large cauldron. The American peers in. It's full of suffering souls burning in hot pitch. As they struggle to leave the pot, low-ranking devils sitting on the rim pitchfork them back in. The American is properly shocked. Satan says, That's where we put sinful Englishmen. The tour continues. Soon the duo approaches a second cauldron. It's slightly larger and slightly hotter. The American peers in. It is also full of suffering souls, all wearing berets. Devils are pitchforking would-be escapees back into this cauldron as well. That's where we put sinful Frenchmen, Satan says. In the distance is a third cauldron. It's much bigger and is glowing white-hot. The American can bear to get near it. Nonetheless, at Satan's insistence, he approaches it and peers in. It is absolutely packed with souls, barely visible under the surface of the boiling liquid. Now and then, however, one clambers out of the pitch and desperately reaches for the rim. Oddly, there are no devils sitting on the edge of this giant pot, but the clamberer disappears back under the surface anyway. The American asks, Why are there no demons here to keep everyone from escaping? Satan replies, This is where we put the Russians. If one tries to escape, the others pull him back in. Milton believed that stubborn refusal to change in the face of error not only meant ejection from heaven and subsequent degeneration into an ever-deepening hell, but the rejection of redemption itself. Satan knows full well that even if he was willing to seek reconciliation, and God willing to grant it, he would only rebel again because he will not change. Perhaps it is this prideful stubbornness that constitutes the mysterious, unforgivable sin against the Holy Ghost. Farewell, happy fields, where joy forever dwells. Hail, horrors! Hail, infernal world, and thou profoundest hell, receive thy new possessor, one who brings a mind not to be changed by place or time. This is no afterlife fantasy. This is no perverse realm of post-existence torture for political enemies. This is an abstract idea, 
and abstractions are often more real than what they represent. The idea that hell exists in some metaphysical manner is not only ancient and pervasive, it's true. Hell is eternal. It has always existed. It exists now. It's the most barren, hopeless, and malevolent subdivision of the underworld of chaos, where disappointed and resentful people forever dwell. The mind is its own place, and in itself can make a heaven of hell, a hell of heaven. Here we may reign secure, and in my choice, to reign is worth ambition, though in hell. Better to reign in hell than serve in heaven. Those who have lied enough in word and action live there, in hell, now. Take a walk down any busy urban street. Keep your eyes open and pay attention. You will see people who are there now. These are the people to whom you instinctively give a wide berth. These are the people who are immediately angered if you direct your gaze toward them, although sometimes they will instead turn away in shame. I saw a horribly damaged street alcoholic do exactly that in the presence of my young daughter. He wanted, above all, to avoid seeing his degraded state incontrovertibly reflected in her eyes. It is deceit that makes people miserable beyond what they can bear. It is deceit that fills human souls with resentment and vengefulness. It is deceit that produces the terrible suffering of mankind, the death camps of the Nazis, the torture chambers and genocides of Stalin and that even greater monster Mao. It was deceit that killed hundreds of millions of people in the 20th century. It was deceit that almost doomed civilization itself. It is deceit that still threatens us most profoundly today. The Truth Instead What happens if, instead, we decide to stop lying? What does this even mean? We are limited in our knowledge, after all. We must make decisions here and now even though the best means and the best goals can never be discerned with certainty. An aim, an ambition, provides the structure necessary for action. An aim provides a destination, a point of contrast against the present, and a framework within which all things can be evaluated. An aim defines progress and makes such progress exciting. An aim reduces anxiety, because if you have no aim, everything, can mean anything or nothing, and neither of those two options makes for a tranquil spirit. Thus, we have to think and plan and limit and pause it in order to live at all. How then to envision the future and establish our direction without falling prey to the temptation of totalitarian certainty? Some reliance on tradition can help us establish our aims. It is reasonable to do what other people have always done, unless we have a very good reason not to. It is reasonable to become educated and work and find love and have a family. That is how culture maintains itself. But it is necessary to aim at your target, however traditional, with your eyes wide open. You have a direction, but it might be wrong. You have a plan, but it might be ill-formed. You may have been led astray by your own ignorance, and worse, by your own unrevealed corruption. 
You must make friends, therefore, with what you don't know instead of what you know. You must remain awake to catch yourself in the act. You must remove the beam in your own eye before you concern yourself with the mote in your brother's. And in this way, you strengthen your own spirit so it can tolerate the burden of existence, and you rejuvenate the state. The ancient Egyptians had already figured this out thousands of years ago, although their knowledge remained embodied in dramatic form. They worshipped Osiris, mythological founder of the state and the god of tradition. Osiris, however, was vulnerable to overthrow and banishment to the underworld by Set, his evil, scheming brother. The Egyptians represented in story the fact that social organizations ossify with time and tend towards willful blindness. Osiris would not see his brother's true character, even though he could have. Set waits and, at an opportune moment, attacks. He hacks Osiris into pieces and scatters the divine remains through the kingdom. He sends his brother's spirit to the underworld. He makes it very difficult for Osiris to pull himself back together. Fortunately, the great king did not have to deal with Set on his own. The Egyptians also worshipped Horus, the son of Osiris. Horus took the twin forms of a falcon, the most visually acute of all creatures, and the still famous hieroglyphic single Egyptian eye, as alluded to in Rule 7. Osiris is tradition aged and willfully blind. Horus, his son, could and would, by contrast, see. Horus was the god of attention. That is not the same as rationality. Because he paid attention, Horus could perceive and triumph against the evils of Set, his uncle, albeit at great cost. When Horus confronts Set, they have a terrible battle. Before Set's defeat and banishment from the kingdom, he tears out one of his nephew's eyes. But the eventually victorious Horus takes back the eye. Then he does something truly unexpected. He journeys voluntarily to the underworld and gives the eye to his father. What does this mean? First, that the encounter with malevolence and evil is of sufficient terror to damage even the vision of a god. Second, that the attentive son can restore the vision of his father. Culture is always in a near-dead state, even though it was established by the spirit of great people in the past. But the present is not the past. The wisdom of the past thus deteriorates or becomes outdated in proportion to the genuine difference between the conditions of the present and the past. That is a mere consequence of the passage of time and the change that passage inevitably brings. But it is also the case that culture and its wisdom is additionally vulnerable to corruption, to voluntary, willful blindness, and Mephistophelian intrigue. Thus, the inevitable functional decline of the institutions granted to us by our ancestors is sped along by our misbehavior are missing of the mark in the present. It is our responsibility to see what is before our eyes courageously and to learn from it, even if it seems horrible.
even if the horror of seeing it damages our consciousness and half-blinds us. The act of seeing is particularly important when it challenges what we know and rely on, upsetting and destabilizing us. It is the act of seeing that informs the individual and updates the state. It was for this reason that Nietzsche said that a man's worth was determined by how much truth he could tolerate. You are by no means only what you already know. You are also all that which you could know, if you only would. Thus, you should never sacrifice what you could be for what you are. You should never give up the better that resides within for the security you already have, and certainly not when you have already caught a glimpse, an undeniable glimpse, of something beyond. In the Christian tradition, Christ is identified with the Logos. The Logos is the Word of God. That Word transformed chaos into order at the beginning of time. In his human form, Christ sacrificed himself voluntarily to the truth, to the good, to God. In consequence, he died and was reborn. The Word that produces order from chaos sacrifices everything, even itself, to God. That single sentence, wise beyond comprehension, sums up Christianity. Every bit of learning is a little death. Every bit of new information challenges a previous conception, forcing it to dissolve into chaos before it can be reborn as something better. Sometimes such deaths virtually destroy us. In such cases, we might never recover, or if we do, we change a lot. A good friend of mine discovered that his wife of decades was having an affair. He didn't see it coming. It plunged him into a deep depression. He descended into the underworld. He told me at one point, I always thought that people who were depressed should just shake it off. I didn't have any idea what I was talking about. Eventually, he returned from the depths. In many ways, he's a new man, and perhaps, a wiser and better man. He lost 40 pounds. He ran a marathon. He traveled to Africa and climbed Mount Kilimanjaro. He chose rebirth over descent into hell. Set your ambitions, even if you are uncertain about what they should be. The better ambitions have to do with the development of character and ability rather than status and power. Status you can lose. You carry character with you wherever you go, and it allows you to prevail against adversity. Knowing this, tie a rope to a boulder. Pick up the great stone, heave it in front of you, and pull yourself towards it. Watch and observe while you move forward. Articulate your experience as clearly and carefully to yourself and others as you possibly can. In this manner, you will learn to proceed more effectively and efficiently towards your goal. And, while you are doing this, do not lie, especially to yourself. If you pay attention to what you do and say, you can learn to feel a state of internal division and weakness when you are misbehaving and misspeaking. It's an embodied sensation, not a thought. 
I experience an internal sensation of sinking and division rather than solidity and strength when I am incautious with my acts and words. It seems to be centered in my solar plexus, where a large knot of nervous tissue resides. I learned to recognize when I was lying, in fact, by noticing this sinking and division, and then inferring the presence of a lie. It often took me a long time to ferret out the deception. Sometimes I was using words for appearance. Sometimes I was trying to disguise my own true ignorance of the topic at hand. Sometimes I was using the words of others to avoid the responsibility of thinking for myself. If you pay attention when you are seeking something, you'll move towards your goal. More importantly, however, you will acquire the information that allows your goal itself to transform. A totalitarian never asks, what if my current ambition is an error? He treats it instead as the absolute. It becomes his god for all intents and purposes. It constitutes his highest value. It regulates his emotions and motivational states and determines his thoughts. All people serve their ambition. In that matter, there are no atheists. There are only people who know and don't know what God they serve. If you bend everything totally, blindly, and willfully towards the attainment of a goal, and only that goal, you will never be able to discover if another goal would serve you and the world better. It is this that you sacrifice if you do not tell the truth. If, instead, you tell the truth, your values transform as you progress. If you allow yourself to be informed by the reality manifesting itself as you struggle forward, your notions of what is important will change. You will reorient yourself, sometimes gradually, and sometimes suddenly and radically. Imagine, you go to engineering school, because that is what your parents desire, but it is not what you want. Working at cross-purposes to your own wishes, you will find yourself unmotivated and failing. You will struggle to concentrate and discipline yourself, but it will not work. Your soul will reject the tyranny of your will. How else could that be said? Why are you complying? You may not want to disappoint your parents, although if you fail, you will do exactly that. You may lack the courage for the conflict necessary to free yourself. You may not want to sacrifice your childish belief in parental omniscience, wishing devoutly to continue believing that there is someone who knows you better than you know yourself and who also knows all about the world. You want to be shielded in this manner from the stark existential aloneness of individual being and its attendant responsibility. This is all very common and understandable. But you suffer because you are truly not meant to be an engineer. One day you've had enough. You drop out. You disappoint your parents. You learn to live with that. You consult only yourself, even though that means you must rely on your own decisions. You take a philosophy degree. You accept the burden of your own mistakes. You become your own person. By rejecting your father's vision, you develop your own. And then, as your parents age, 
You've become adult enough to be there for them when they come to need you. They win, too. But both victories had to be purchased at the cost of the conflict engendered by your truth. As Matthew 10.34 has it, citing Christ, emphasizing the role of the spoken truth. Think not that I have come to send peace on earth. I came not to send peace, but a sword. As you continue to live in accordance with the truth as it reveals itself to you, you will have to accept and deal with the conflicts that mode of being will generate. If you do so, you will continue to mature and become more responsible in small ways, don't underestimate their importance, and in large. You will ever more closely approach your newer and more wisely formulated goals and become even wiser in their formulation when you discover and rectify your inevitable errors. Your conception of what is important will become more and more appropriate as you incorporate the wisdom of your experience. You will quit wildly oscillating and walk ever more directly towards the good, a good you could have never comprehended if you had insisted, despite all evidence, that you were right, absolutely right, at the beginning. If existence is good, then the clearest and cleanest and most correct relationship with it is also good. If existence is not good, by contrast, you're lost. Nothing will save you. Certainly not the petty rebellion's murky thinking and obscurantist blindness that constitute deceit. Is existence good? You have to take a terrible risk to find out. Live in truth or live in deceit. Face the consequences and draw your conclusions. This is the act of faith whose necessity was insisted upon by the Danish philosopher Kierkegaard. You cannot know ahead of time. Even a good example is insufficient for proof given the differences between individuals. The success of a good example can always be attributed to luck. Thus, you have to risk your particular individual life to find out. It is this risk that the ancients described as the sacrifice of personal will to the will of God. It is not an act of submission, at least as submission is currently understood. It is an act of courage. It is faith that the wind will blow your ship to a new and better port. It is the faith that being can be corrected by becoming. It is the spirit of exploration itself. Perhaps it is better to conceptualize it this way. Everyone needs a concrete, specific goal, an ambition, and a purpose to limit chaos and make intelligible sense of his or her life. But all such concrete goals can and should be subordinated to what might be considered a meta-goal, which is a way of approaching and formulating goals themselves. The meta-goal could be Live in truth. This means act diligently towards some well-articulated, defined, and temporary end. Make your criteria for failure and success timely and clear, at least for yourself, and even better if others can understand what you are doing and evaluate it with you. While doing so, however, 
allow the world and your spirit to unfold as they will while you act out and articulate the truth. This is both pragmatic ambition and the most courageous of faiths. Life is suffering. The Buddha stated that explicitly. Christians portray the same sentiment imagistically with the divine crucifix. The Jewish faith is saturated with its remembrance. The equivalence of life and limitation is the primary and unavoidable fact of existence. The vulnerability of our being renders us susceptible to the pains of social judgment and contempt and the inevitable breakdown of our bodies. But even all those ways of suffering, terrible as they are, are not sufficient to corrupt the world, to transform it into hell, the way the Nazis and the Maoists and the Stalinists corrupted the world and turned it into hell. For that, as Hitler stated so clearly, you need the lie. In the big lie, there is always a certain force of credibility because the broad masses of a nation are always more easily corrupted in the deeper strata of their emotional nature than consciously or voluntarily. And thus, in the primitive simplicity of their minds, they more readily fall victims to the big lie than the small lie, since they themselves often tell small lies in little matters, but would be ashamed to resort to large-scale falsehoods. It would never come into their heads to fabricate colossal untruths, and they would not believe that others could have the impudence to distort the truth so infamously. Even though the facts which prove this to be so may be brought clearly to their minds, they will still doubt and waver and will continue to think that there may be some other explanation. For the big lie, you first need the little lie. The little lie is, metaphorically speaking, the bait used by the father of lies to hook his victims. The human capacity for imagination makes us capable of dreaming up and creating alternative worlds. This is the ultimate source of our creativity. With that singular capacity, however, comes the counterpart, the opposite side of the coin. We can deceive ourselves and others into believing and acting as if things are other than we know they are. And why not lie? Why not twist and distort things to obtain a small gain, or to smooth things over, or to keep the peace, or to avoid hurt feelings? Reality has its terrible aspect. Do we really need to confront its snake-headed face in every moment of our waking consciousness and at every turn in our lives? Why not turn away, at least when looking is simply too painful? The reason is simple. Things fall apart. What worked yesterday will not necessarily work today. We have inherited the great machinery of state and culture from our forefathers. They are dead and cannot deal with the changes of the day. The living can. We can open our eyes and modify what we have where necessary and keep the machinery running smoothly. Or we can pretend that everything is all right, fail to make the necessary repairs, and then curse fate when nothing goes our way. Things fall apart. This is one of the great discoveries of humanity. 
and we speed the natural deterioration of great things through blindness, inaction, and deceit. Without attention, culture degenerates and dies, and evil prevails. What you see of a lie when you act it out, and most lies are acted out rather than told, is very little of what it actually is. A lie is connected to everything else. It produces the same effect on the world that a single drop of sewage produces in even the largest crystal magnum of champagne. It is something best considered live and growing. When the lies get big enough, the whole world spoils. But if you look close enough, the biggest of lies is composed of smaller lies, and those are composed of still smaller lies. And the smallest of lies is where the big lie starts. It is not the mere misstatement of fact. It is instead an act that has the aspect of the most serious conspiracy ever to possess the race of man. Its seeming innocuousness, its trivial meanness, the feeble arrogance that gives rise to it, the apparently trivial circumventing of responsibility that it aims at, these all work effectively to camouflage its true nature, its genuine dangerousness, and its equivalence with the great acts of evil that man perpetrates and often enjoys. Lies corrupt the world. Worse, that is their intent. First, a little lie. Then, several little lies to prop it up. After that, Distorted thinking to avoid the shame that those lies produce. Then a few more lies to cover up the consequences of the distorted thinking. Then, most terribly, the transformation of those now necessary lies through practice into automatized, specialized, structural, neurologically instantiated, unconscious belief and action. Then the sickening of experience itself as action predicated on falsehood fails to produce the results intended. If you don't believe in brick walls, you will still be injured when you run headlong into one. Then you will curse reality itself for producing the wall. After that comes the arrogance and sense of superiority that inevitably accompanies the production of successful lies, hypothetically successful lies. And that is one of the greatest dangers. Apparently, everyone is fooled. So everyone is stupid except me. Everyone is stupid and fooled by me. So I can get away with whatever I want. Finally, there is the proposition. Being itself is susceptible to my manipulations. Thus, it deserves no respect. That's things falling apart, like Osiris severed into pieces. That's the structure of the person or the state disintegrating under the influence of a malign force. That's the chaos of the underworld emerging like a flood to subsume familiar ground. But it's not yet hell. Hell comes later. Hell comes when lies have destroyed the relationship between individual or state and reality itself. Things fall apart. Life degenerates. Everything becomes frustration and disappointment. Hope consistently betrays. The deceitful individual desperately gestures at sacrifice, like Cain, but fails to please God. Then the drama enters its final act.
Tortured by constant failure, the individual becomes bitter. Disappointment and failure amalgamate and produce a fantasy. The world is bent on my personal suffering, my particular undoing, my destruction. I need, I deserve, I must have my revenge. That's the gateway to hell. That's when the underworld, a terrifying and unfamiliar place, becomes misery itself. At the beginning of time, according to the great Western tradition, the Word of God transformed chaos into being through the act of speech. It is axiomatic within that tradition that man and woman alike are made in the image of that God. We also transform chaos into being through speech. We transform the manifold possibilities of the future into the actualities of past and present. To tell the truth is to bring the most habitable reality into being. Truth builds edifices that can stand a thousand years. Truth feeds and clothes the poor and makes nations wealthy and safe. Truth reduces the terrible complexity of a man to the simplicity of his word so that he can become a partner rather than an enemy. Truth makes the past truly past and makes the best use of the future's possibilities. Truth is the ultimate, inexhaustible, natural resource. It's the light in the darkness. See the truth. Tell the truth. Truth will not come in the guise of opinions shared by others, as the truth is neither a collection of slogans nor an ideology. It will, instead, be personal. Your truth is something only you can tell, based as it is on the unique circumstances of your life. Apprehend your personal truth. Communicate it carefully in an articulate manner to yourself and others. This will ensure your security and your life more abundantly now while you inhabit the structure of your current beliefs. This will ensure the benevolence of the future, diverging as it might from the certainties of the past. The truth springs forth ever anew from the most profound wellsprings of being. It will keep your soul from withering and dying while you encounter the inevitable tragedy of life. It will help you avoid the terrible desire to seek vengeance for that tragedy, part of the terrible sin of being, which everything must bear gracefully just so it can exist. If your life is not what it could be, try telling the truth. If you cling desperately to an ideology or wallow in nihilism, try telling the truth. If you feel weak and rejected and desperate and confused, try telling the truth. In paradise, everyone speaks the truth. That is what makes it paradise. Tell the truth, or at least don't lie.